Gospels, by nature, are selective accounts. They're not biographies of Jesus. They don't they can't contain everything that he ever did in his life. They're not long enough. That's not the aim. Uh, they're, they're carefully curated collections, each gospel writer having a particular purpose. We've seen John's stated purpose in John chapter 20. So we ought to pay attention to what things have been selected and included. Jesus chose to heal a man blind since birth. Why does he do that? Why does John include that? As with all of Jesus' miraculous works, the physical healing isn't the point. Even a couple of chapters later when Jesus is going to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, his giving Lazarus a few more years of life before he dies again is not the point. Uh, the, the point in all of Jesus' miracles or signs, as they're referred to in, in John's gospel, the point is primarily twofold. First, it, they are demonstrations of divine power that would seek to validate that Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be, that he is, in fact, the Son sent from the Father. And the second purpose is always to show us something of our need and Jesus' work, Jesus' provision for that need. So, with the healing of the man who was blind from birth, we need to pay close attention to our own blindness and how he is the remedy for that blindness. Now, while we... We're not born without physical sight. I don't think any of us here this morning. We have all been born spiritually blind. We lacked or lack the ability to perceive, to sense, to ascertain the realities of our spiritual condition. We can't see our need, much less the provision for that need offered in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the funny thing about spiritual blindness that really isn't funny we are all blind to our spiritual blindness for someone who's physically blind it takes zero convincing zero argument you don't have to write apologetic books on how to convince a blind person that they're blind If you're physically blind, you know it. it. It would be silly to deny it. But for all of us in our spiritual blindness, we don't even recognize it until God is already in the process of healing it. If we can see that we have been blind all this time, that means that he's already giving us sight. To see both the blindness and the sight that's offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we continue this morning with the man born blind in John chapter 9. With the Pharisees' second interrogation of this man, we're going to see the stark contrast of the Pharisees' continued blindness and the man's newfound 
sight. I want to ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. John chapter 9 verses 24 through 34. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. May God bless the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord. These are your words. You inspired them. You carried along the human authors, Holy Spirit, as they wrote down the very words of God. These are words that contain the truth of your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your plan to redeem your people through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for your supernatural, sovereign work of opening blind eyes to see and behold the truth in these words. Thank you for how you do that initially in our lives when you draw us to yourself. Thank you for how you continue to do that work as you continue to remove scales from our eyes and help us to see the truth your word contains. Would you be active at doing that even this morning for the purposes of your glory and our good? We do ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. As is so very common in John's gospel, right? John's, John's gospel is just the ironic gospel. He loves irony. He loves to pour it on thick. And this passage is no exception. The Pharisees are 1,000% convinced that they have 20-20 vision. They are absolutely right. They've got it all figured out. Their understanding of Scripture is flawless. Their assessment of who Jesus is is spot on. They think. But in reality, they don't see anything accurately 
or clearly. The first thing they don't see and get is glory. There's an outline in your worship folder if that helps you follow along. Verse 24, uh, they've called this man back a second time and they're demanding of him, give glory to God. So what is it in their minds that this man could say or do that would give glory to God? Well, it would be to tell the truth about Jesus. That's, that's really what is meant here by give glory. Come clean, tell the truth. The, the same expression we, we saw in Joshua 7, when uh, Israel's, uh, during the conquest of all of their enemies, God gave explicit and clear instruction, do not take any of the spoil or plunder for yourself. Destroy it all. And so they go to a city, Ai, and they get their rear ends handed to them in royal fashion. And it becomes clear and evident that someone somewhere has kept some of this spoil and plunder. And through an interesting process of events, it becomes apparent that that certain someone is Achan. And when Joshua confronts Achan, he says, Give glory to the Lord God. Come clean. Tell the truth. Tell us what you have done. And that's what the Pharisees are doing this day with the man born blind. Come clean. Tell us, agree with us, that Jesus is a sinner. That will give glory to God in their eyes, namely because it will preserve their own glory. It will preserve their own status and position, which we talked about last week. They think, they see clearly. We know he... We know this man is a sinner. We know it. You just need to agree with us. Which, of course, if this man did what they wanted, it would be the opposite of giving glory to God. It'd be taking away glory from the Son of God. And, of course, this man, this man with recently created, it's not even restored sight, recently created sight. He's not about to do that because he, unlike the Pharisees, can see clearly. He definitely will not rob Jesus of glory, but he will be the epitome of giving glory to God by what he says in verse 25. I don't know anything about whether he's a sinner, but here's something I do know. I was blind. I've been blind my whole life. Now I can see. I do need to to come clean. I do need to give glory about something. Jesus has radically transformed my life. That gives such glory to God. When we're able to clearly see our former blindness and our need and to recognize that there was a point when I had it all wrong. There was a point in my life when I thought that my way was the best way. There was a point when I was rebelling against God, traveling down my own path, but then all of a sudden my eyes were opened. And I saw that rebellion and that sin was leading to 
destruction. And I was rescued. I was saved from certain ruin. And so my question for all of us this, this morning, do we give glory to God like that? Do we come clean like that on a regular basis with those around us? Giving an honest confession of, of who we used to be, of what we used to do, of what condition that left us in, and of what Jesus has done for us. Or perhaps, if you're here this morning and you're still spiritually blind, then you don't see or understand a need like that. As far as you're concerned, you've always been okay. I, I don't understand this blindness that you're talking about. You don't feel like you've ever been in rebellion or, or violating God's holy law. And that is the essence of spiritual blindness. Second great contrast that we see between the Pharisees' blindness and the man's sight concerns being a disciple in their second interrogation of the man, they're asking the same questions as before. In verse 27, the man calls them on it. He says, are, are you asking me all this same stuff again because you want to be his disciples too? And so this question just infuriates the Pharisees. Right? What would ever make you suggest such a terrible thing? No, we don't want to be his disciples. We're disciples of Moses. Now, oftentimes in sermon preparation, I find halfway through, two-thirds of the way through, three-quarters of the way through, that I've been barking up the wrong tree. And I was barking up the wrong tree for a bit this week, thinking about the Pharisees' claim of being disciples of Moses. And I was thinking in my mind about comparing what it's, even with a list, I had already kind of seen the sermon slide in my mind, a list of, well, this is what it's like to be a disciple of Moses. Here's what it's like to have a life that's oriented around morality and obedience to the law and religious rule-keeping. And here's what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus and, and to have life centered on the boundless grace of, of Jesus. And so comparing those two and obviously in the end showing you how being a disciple of Jesus is far superior to being a disciple of Moses. But then it hit me. It's not that the Pharisees are disciples of the wrong person. What's really going on here is that they're not even disciples of the person they claim to be disciples of. Because if they had truly been Moses' disciples, then guess what? Moses would have led them straight to Jesus. If you have your Bibles open, turn back to chapter 5, or you can follow along on the screen. This is when we first saw this. J Jesus knows how important Moses is to the religious leaders, how much their significance is tied up in Moses. And so he's already addressed this back in chapter 5, beginning in verse 39. You search the Scriptures 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So think about the scriptures that they would have had. They would have obviously had Moses. They would have had the Pentateuch. They would have had the writings, the Psalms, and the Proverbs. And they would have had the prophets. It is they that bear witness about me. Then jump down to verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you want to claim to be disciples of Moses, fine. But part of being a disciple is that you have to listen to what the man says. You have to listen when he says in Deuteronomy 18 that there's another prophet like me who's going to come and you need to listen to him. You need to listen to Moses when he says in Deuteronomy 10 that the real issue isn't your adherence to the law, it's that you need your heart circumcised. You need to be changed on the inside. The the Pharisees claim back in chapter 9 and verse 29 that we know God has spoken to Moses. Surely in view here is Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. We know that God has spoken to Moses. We remember very clearly. There was thunder and lightning and, and the whole mountain was surrounded by smoke. It was a pretty unforgettable scene. It's etched in their memories. It's passed down from generation to generation just as the law itself was passed down. But what didn't get passed down was Moses' own understanding. We can't keep the law. We we can't keep God's law perfectly. Something else has to be done. Something has to be done to our hearts in order to keep it. We need to be looking for the help that God will one day send. If these folks had truly been Moses' disciples, they would have listened to him. They would have listened to the prophets who came after him. The prophets who would speak of this coming day. This coming day of of the Messiah, of the Savior that God would send. Uh, Isaiah is very clear. Isaiah 29, verse 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. That's interesting. Later on, Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man leaps like a deer. Tongue of mute sing for joy. It's telling about some of the things that Messiah is going to do when he arrives. Isaiah 42, last one. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. They'd been told what to expect. When Jesus bursts on the scene and starts doing these very things, one might think 
that there'd be some connections made, but in their blindness, with their malice and their rage against Jesus, they can't hear what the prophets have said. They can't see what Jesus is doing as direct fulfillment of those prophecies. They were religious experts. They'd read those words hundreds of times, studied them, explained them. But when you are spiritually blind, you cannot put two and two together and get four. And that's the next thing to look at on your outline, this this logical conclusion. The man born blind reaches a pretty logical conclusion. And in his innocence and naivete, he expects the Pharisees to do the same. He's asking them in verse 27, you too? You want to be his disciple? You want to become his disciple like I have? Now, I read into that question all of my own snark and cynicism and sarcasm. And I just instantly think that, oh, he's just kind of being brutal with the Pharisees. He's playing with them a bit. But I think it really is a genuine question on his part. Because it makes so much sense to him. right? He has put two and two together. This powerful thing that Jesus has done to me, for me, that no one has ever done before, right? Verse 32, no one has ever healed a man who was born blind. This is a unique, a miraculous healing. There's no way this guy could be a sinner and do that, right? Scriptures are clear. Verse 31, we know, right, could give you abundant references of of God hearing the prayers of the righteous and turning a deaf ear to those in rebellion, He must have come from God. That's the only rational, logical explanation. And so it makes sense to this man. Oh, these guys are asking all these same questions again. Maybe they're putting two and two together. Maybe they've reached the same conclusion I have, and they want to join me in following Jesus. Ha, ha, ha. Verse 29. Listen to their reason. No, we're not going to be his disciples. We don't know where he comes from. Which just blows this man's mind. He's like, what? That's your reasoning? Look at what he did. Who cares where he came from? Look at what he did. But the Pharisees' blindness and our blindness before we are healed is very often a willful blindness. It's not just that we can't see and put two two and two together. We can't, but it's not just that. It's also that they didn't want to. We don't want to put two and two together. It can be laid out right there in front of us. We say, "Mm, I don't want that. Not going to do it. It's that they're blind and they're covering their eyes. Not going to look, not going to look, won't do it, can't make me. 
That's the nature of spiritual blindness. And if you have spent any significant time around someone who is spiritually blind, you know that that is true. You know exactly what I'm talking about. This willingness, this insistence to make illogical leaps in thinking. Unreasonable explanations are accepted instead of what's right there and and obvious. Because I don't want to consider or have to embrace this obvious thing that's laid out here before me. Creation's probably the biggest example. Right? You have someone who has witnessed, observed, taken in the magnitude, the immensity, the intricacy of creation and how it all works together. And it's not too big of a leap to think that someone did that. Someone with a lot of wisdom and a lot of power did that. That's not a huge leap when you take it all in. But willful blindness would rather ascribe it to chance and a random combination of circumstances. When we are in the midst of our spiritual blindness, we cannot come to, we do not want to come to reasonable and logical conclusions. The the final bit of, of irony in this contrast to see as it relates to what the Pharisees cannot see in their blindness has to do with sin. They really lose their patience with this man. The man's wit and his honesty and his, his just fearless candor is simply too much for the Pharisees. They realize they have lost this verbal battle. He has won. We have nothing left to say, so what are we going to do? Well, what we often do in that case, we result to insults. Right? When no arguments are left to make, well, let's just insult him. The man finishes his argument with an airtight conclusion, verse 33. He must be from God. And so the Pharisees reply in verse 34, and they use this pronoun twice. They use you twice for emphasis, right? You, born in utter sin, you would teach us. Now, here's the ironic thing. The Pharisees are exactly right. This man was born in utter sin. But what they do is they draw one wrong conclusion And they fail to make a conclusion that they should. The the wrong conclusion they draw is that this man's blindness was the result of his being born in utter sin. But we've already seen that Jesus told the disciples back in verse 3, that's not the case with this man. That's not why he was born blind. He was born blind so that God could display his powerful works in his life. So they're connecting dots here that ought not be connected. They're right about the man being born in utter sin. But the conclusion that they fail to draw is that they were born in utter sin too. They limit the born in utter sin category to the worst of the worst. Those whose actions are so egregious, 
or those who have so clearly been judged and punished by God with some severe physical deformity or malady. They could not see. They were blind to the truth about their own sin and their own sinfulness. They were born in utter sin. Again, it's failing to listen to Moses and the prophets. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But we must be healed of our blindness before any of us will see that. Before any of us will ever see the truth about our sin and the glorious truth about the provision for that sin in the glorious gospel of Jesus. And once our eyes are opened so that we can see, we then see that all of this beauty mixed with all of this irony comes to a culmination here at the table. Think about these things in your outline. Glory. That Jesus would be most glorified in his humiliation. That he would be most glorified as he's stripped and beaten and murdered. That is ironic glory. It is beautiful glory. Disciples. That we would first be Moses' disciples being crushed under a, an unbearable burden of the law, being brought to the point that we realize, I can't do this. But there is another prophet coming that I should listen to, the prophet who would then say, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Allow me to carry your burden to the cross. And then, of course, with eyes that have been opened, then we, can, then we can have two and two equal four. Then we can come to that logical conclusion that it is finished. All the types and shadows of the ceremonial law, everything that has been written has been finished in the culmination of Jesus. And we rest in that. And we trust that. My sins laid on him, paid for forever. It is finished. That's what we're commemorating. That's what we're remembering. That's what we're continuing to be changed and transformed by, that powerful grace here in this moment. Let's pray.